Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Michael Reza, who serves as AVP of Portland Development and Alumni Engagement for the University of Oregon. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we love finding out from our guests uh, what their path to advancement leadership was. And in doing so, love to learn a little bit more about your own journey to higher education. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Michael? What was he into and what led him to California State University, Long Beach? Gosh, junior in high school, that's a long time ago. Um, man, that's a, if I can think that far back, but uh, so it was, you know, mid nineties. So that, uh, that in and of itself is a very different time frame. Um, what were the top songs that year? You yeah. know, just kind of get your mind right. Like what, what was going on? Yeah. I mean, it was a, like, you know, Dr. I mean, being from LA and Southern California in Orange County. So, you know, it was like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and things like that coming out. Um, yeah, I think for me, you know, I, at the time I was playing high school basketball and, you know, just like, you know, a lot of people thought, well, I actually knew I was never going to be good enough to do it professionally, but I was like, hey, maybe I should figure out how to do this in college. And um, I actually ended up going to junior college at Irvine Valley College um, after high school um, to play basketball and quickly realized that um, I should probably study. <laughs> it was probably going to be you know, when I started looking at the past ahead of me, um, especially when I got to that level, it was just, it wasn't for me. And so um, ended up getting my AA degree at Irvine Valley College and transferring into Cal State Long Beach, actually. Um, didn't know what I was going to do. Thought I was going to end up as a, you know, athletic trainer and me and anatomy didn't get along too well. Um, and so I just like a lot of people ended up in psychology and not sure what I was going to do, but I was in sales at the time. When I was in uh, undergrad, I was working for Verizon and um, ended up actually continuing that as a career once I graduated from Long Beach. And so, um, what model of phone or Verizon service were you selling at that moment? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, you know, the remember like little Nokia's that were like this big and. Um, I think text messaging. The one you could play. This, this is making me sound old, Brent. <laughs> no, it's the one you could play Snake on. I'm just thinking it was yeah. probably the first yeah. cell phone. So yeah, I mean, this was. I, I remember the first text messaging and how big of a deal that was. That you could, you know, you can hit three buttons to get to see, right? You hit two, three times and punch in to get to see. So, um, yeah. well, I mean, what was it like selling what was at the time such a transformational? technology. I mean, was it easy? Was it hard? What were the objections? Like, it just had to be so fun, like literally letting people walk away with their first cell phone. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a lot of, it was honestly, it was kind of like coaching. Um, and I coached high school basketball at the time too. So it was actually, you had to teach people how to use the features and use the phone and what it did. And, you know, this is when we had dead spots and service wasn't terribly great and all of those things. So, um, it's funny now, you know, we have computers in our pocket, so it's, you know, completely changed in the last 25 years. Um, but yeah, so I did that. I was in sales and, and, and did, was great at it, had a good time, ended up going from kind of going into corporate on the corporate side and working with a lot of um, enterprise clients. And um, then I think one day I kind of realized I was at the time one of the youngest people in the office and I was like, you know, I imagine myself at my age now and coming up on 45 and went my life would look like. And I realized I didn't want to sell a product, you know, selling, selling a piece of equipment wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and so I ended up, I actually wanted to coach high school or college basketball. So like, that's was like, that's what I'm going to go do is coach college basketball. Um, because as I said, I was coaching um, high school for about seven years and um, I did that in college. It was fun. I did it and did it while, while I was also working. And um so I ended up going to University of Arizona and um, getting my master's degree there. I had some great relationships with the coaching staff there. Uh, one of my best friends was an assistant coach at the time, and I ended up living with him and seeing firsthand what it was like being at a high-level um, program as an assistant coach and realized I don't want to do that either. <laughs> um, and so uh, the point being, you, you got a window into it by okay. way of pursuing your studies and just having to room with somebody that yeah. was doing what you thought you wanted to go and do. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I would go to practice and, and I saw, I loved coaching basketball. I didn't love the idea of recruiting 16 and 17 year olds um, and the work that went in, you know, from a, from a balance standpoint, I mean, kudos to all the coaches out there, they spend their days are grinds. And um, so again, kind of picturing my future would be like, and um, thought about that. And at the time I was also somehow became a graduate assistant um, at the alumni association at the university of Arizona. Can so, I just ask before yeah. we transition to this part of the conversation, yeah. when you were coaching high school basketball, favorite memory, favorite game, favorite team, like what, what stands out? Oh man, honestly, it wasn't about the games. It was a, I, like, I remember the times on the bus and the times at practice um, and talking to the kids, honestly, you, you know, and now they're adults with families and doing great things and competing up with them on Facebook and social media is pretty fun. But I just remember kind of sitting there and um, having the chance to just have really good conversations about life and trying to, you know, steer them in the right direction. Honestly, the basketball stuff was, you know, there are a lot of funny stories that happened around then, but I think the best parts of it were, you know, with the coaches, um, my, you know, my friends and, 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 the, and the kids we were coaching and their, and their parents and families actually just really great people. So up until this part of the story, when you're at Arizona, had philanthropy been a part of your life? Did you understand what philanthropy was? And then just sort of tell me about the, the journey with the grad assistant experience. Um, no, I mean, philanthropy wasn't really a part of my life. It was, um, you know, I went to, when I went to Long Beach, I was a commuter. So I wasn't terribly connected to my undergraduate experience. I had a wonderful graduate experience. Um, and for me, I think the philanthropy I was in was again, like coaching basketball, you know, we had to raise money to take trips and buy uniforms and things like that. And so that was, you know, a very small part of philanthropy that I, that I knew. Um, but what I knew is I had a skill set that was really good on the sales side and really good at kind of building relationships and, and having great conversations with folks. And then once I was a graduate assistant, um, I was working with our chapters at the University of Arizona and um, it just was an easy, an easy transition to that side of the world um, to really to the advancement side of the house. Um, and I love being at a, at, a, at, a, at a university. I just love the energy, um, you know, from the athletics to the cultural events to being around young people. It's, uh, it's, it, it, there, there's never a dull day. And so you were able to sort of stay near the uh, kind of collegiate enterprise just in a different way, uh, yeah. you know, but maybe get some of the same good vibes while uh, spending fewer nights on the road eating McDonald's, recruiting 17-year-olds uh, to the team, something like that. We eat a little, you know, we actually ended up spending a lot of time on the road, actually, funny enough, um, in the development world, but it was, uh, I can also say no. <laughs> so that was that was also a nice part is you also have a chance to um, set your schedule a little bit and adjust to life, so. Well, yeah, and there I do think uh, I, I played football in college and went through the recruiting process and when you see it on both sides, both as a student, you know, as a student athlete, you're getting the calls from the coach at eight o'clock at night after they had already had a full day of meetings after they had had practice. And that's when they're working in the recruiting time. Uh, and then when you're, you know, on the team and you see the hours that are being logged and it's somewhat seasonal, right? I mean, there are certain times of the year when maybe it's a little bit lighter, uh, whereas the, the chaos maybe can be a little bit more controlled in the, in the development sphere for sure. Yeah, and I, it's funny. I mean, I think the athletics side and what we do in development is actually very much in alignment um, from a not only from leadership and the, the things you learn as a coach and as an athlete, but also I think um, the competitiveness of what we do and the scoreboard and what we do and and kind of that drive to do better every day. I think there's a lot of parallels actually. Now it sounds like your experience early in your career, right, at Verizon was more, let's call it direct selling, direct yeah. selling, one-to-one -one conversations, closing the deal, uh, if you will. But then uh, when you transitioned to UC Irvine, you were more on the mass marketing, one-to-many uh, by way of some of the membership-oriented work. And I think just membership in general has gone through a big transition in the advancement sector. But 
Tell me about, you know, if, if, if most people, if people listening have spent most of their career in more that direct selling or direct fundraising one-to-one mm-hmm. versus one-to-many membership or mass marketing, what were some of the, I don't know, interesting observations, challenges, uh, aspects that you liked or didn't like relative to the core one-to-one work? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, especially, you know, being on the on that side of it, um, I think really ultimately for, to do the one-to-one really well, you have to have a strong brand. You have to have a strong complement of marketing to actually get in the door to begin with. And so I think it, obviously we're the story, we're storytellers in, in what we do. Um, and so is the mass side is like, is you're telling the story. The difference is you have a piece of paper to tell it versus a 15, 20 minute conversation, an hour long, you know, coffee or whatever that is. And so the biggest difference, which you had to be so precise and concise with your words and make sure that you would spend so much time developing a website or an article for the, the magazine um, and appealed to go out in the mail. Um, and so really learning those fundamentals of how to build the, and how to use those tools um, and how to be really, really how to tell that story before you lose people, right? To me, that's one of the most, one of the best parts about kind of um, building that foundation on the mass marketing side, um, because you are, you are reaching individuals at the same time. You just have a different tool to use. And so that was, I think, one of the, one of the biggest differences was um, you don't get that time to build rapport and to, you know, ask how your family's doing or what did you do last weekend, right? You don't talk about the weather. You're just, here's what we're doing. You get straight to it. So what led you uh, up the coast to Oregon, to Oregon State? Um, yeah, I think uh, I had no, I don't even know if I knew where Oregon was when I was in Southern California. And I say that kind of sadly, but also in a very honest way is it wasn't a place where I thought I would end up moving to um, or living. I, you know, being from Southern California, thinking about being at a place where you hear how much it rains and all of those things um, wasn't what I thought I would do. But just like in our world, it's through a network and 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 someone um, at the time. I think I was part of a group called the West Coast Marketing Group, and um, we were a lot of the folks that did marketing and membership within universities. This, the group still exists um, and gets together every year and does a great conference. And so I volunteered and got to know a lot of folks through the conference and a colleague said, hey, we have this awesome opportunity at Oregon State. Um, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I can't move to Corvallis. <laughs> That's not where I want to live. Um, I'm from, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big city guy kind of thing. Um, and, um, she said, no, but you can, it's out of, you can work out of Portland. And I was like, oh, well, let's consider that. Never in my life had been to Portland. Um, but at the time I was looking for a new opportunity. I was at UCI, at UCI and realizing the f- kind of where I wanted my life to go and looking for what was next. And so, um, I, you know, pursued it and a few months later ended up in, uh, Portland, Oregon. And so, you know, first impression settling in, uh, how did, how, how was it leaving Southern California? That's a pretty big change. Yeah. You know, honestly, I think for a lot of people, right. It's, um, you, you, a lot of people leave the place that they're from because they're looking for something different. And so for me, it was, I love the fact that I'm in a place where, um, you know, we have seasons and although, you know, Southern California, I think, got more rain than Seattle this year. So I don't know what's going on. But at the time, <laughs> this is a, this was a very different different move for us and so for me. And when I moved, um, it just felt like home. And when I came up to visit, I have a buddy here that um, the only person I knew before I moved played football at University of Oregon. Um, knows everyone in Portland, and he called it my recruiting trip. And he's like, "We're getting we're getting you to move here." And so took you to the, took you to the Nike store. Got <laughs> yeah, well, and I also interviewed in, uh, you know, I interviewed in August and so it was 85 degrees out. It was beautiful. So I, I was fooled by the weather and forgot that it rained here a lot. So, um, but what I realized is that, you know, when I, once I got here, I realized, you know, it was September and it rained for, you know, eight months uh, on and off. And I realized you just continue to live life in you can drive in the rain 
can go to the grocery store in the rain. In LA, you actually did none of that when it rained. <laughs> you just kind of stayed home. Um, and so I just had, I realized very quickly that um, you just had to adapt. And so I think it was a good lesson actually. Yeah, humans are fairly adaptable for sure. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite exhibit at the Oregon Zoo and how did you get plugged in there? Uh, well, now that I have kids, we are there a lot. And then at the time I didn't have kids, um, I wasn't married. And so when I, when, um, I interviewed for the Oregon state job, the head of the, um, foundation at the Oregon zoo foundation was uh, on my hiring committee. And so she said, okay, welcome to Portland. I need you to join this board. <laughs> and so that's how I actually ended up uh, working with Oregon zoo foundation a little bit. Um, and it was great. It was a great way to, to kind of get introduced to the city, work on some wonderful events that engaged um, our community. And that uh, no, was, was wonderful. Favorite exhibit now has to be the polar bear and the elephant exhibit. The elephant exhibit there is awesome. We were just watching an elephant related National Geographic series with my kids last night, and they were absolutely fascinated. So we need to. Uh... Need to make that happen in real life. Uh, you had the opportunity then to, at Oregon State, move sort of back into the the fundraising side of things by joining the foundation, and you must have done so just as we were getting to know Mark Koenig and at the time Mike Goodwin and and then Sean and and yeah. uh, we haven't had the opportunity directly to connect uh, historically much, but um, just tell me about that transition and kind of where you where you focused in that role yeah I mean Oregon State was great I spent eight years there um with about three on the alumni in the alumni association and five in the development side of the house um and I think from just in terms of doing things um at a really high level from an advancement perspective and truly understanding um the integrated model of development. Um, Mike Goodwin was, you know, I'd call him a mentor um, and someone that I would go to and, and just, you know, at one point it was like, Mike, at what, what, what in, in the future, um, I would love to know more about your job. That's where I envision myself um, as leading an organization. And um, he was great, you know, would, would give me time and, and listen and have conversations with me about just really high level things and made sure that he invested in me. And so that was, I think at Oregon State, um, having a chance to do things that allowed me to gain a network and, and grow my experience beyond the job I was assigned to do, um, which I did well, but to really grow and understand the business of advancement um, through volunteering, through conferences, um, that OSU invested a lot in me and I wouldn't be, you know, the success I've had has been a lot due to the people that were there, honestly, and still, still call Sean and pick his brain and uh, whenever I can. So any favorite visits or visits gone bad that you can recall during that period? I just started asking this question because, you know, I've, I've always done the favorite visit, but I've also now started seeing a really interesting pattern when you ask somebody like, when has a visit gone really poorly, whether it's travel logistics or just a bad setup? So you pick uh, really good, really out there, anything in between. And I, I, I'm partly asking because one of the craziest visit stories I've ever heard was from a former colleague of yours at the Oregon State University Foundation who worked around veterinary uh, fundraising as part of the vet school. Uh, and, and talked about one time having to help a vet like deliver an animal or oh, something. <laughs> Well, it's funny. I think one, I don't know if it's, if it's a bad visit I, or if I just was crazy for spending this much time. Um, but I think the, the visit story was I met with, um, and it actually turned out really well, but oftentimes I, I, I say that we're the least important person on, on someone's schedule um, whenever they set up a visit. And so, you know, we get canceled on and things happen all the time where something else comes up and you just kind of roll with it. You can show up to a place and you might get a call later and someone's like, oh, I'm sorry, something came up. I can't be there. Um, and, you know, we're trying, I was a regional fundraiser um, when this happened. And so I think that the time was I showed up at a discovery visit with a um, with the orthopedic surgeon and um, 
showed up at the doc at the office and, you know, before he's like, Hey, I have like 15 minutes to talk to you between surgeries. Um, and, um, come at this time, you know, we'll meet me in the break room, all these things at, at this, at the, at the surgical center. And so I show up and I talk to the nurse and she's like, yeah, doctor will be out in a little bit. Stay, wait right here. You know, half hour passes by nothing. 45 minutes, an hour. And then I'm like, all right, I think I'm just going to sneak out. Right. But then I'm also like, you know, my next appointment has a little bit of time. So I just like, I'm going to start doing some emails and just sit here for a minute. About an hour and a half to two hours later, he just comes in. He's like, you're still here. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, I'm still here. Um, we had a great 10 to 15 minute conversation, 10 minute conversation straight to the point. Um, you know what? I want to make a gift. I want to do something. I'm not sure what here's my cell number, give me a call. We ended up becoming really good friends um, after that. Really great guy. Um, he ended up making several major gifts, um, but it was one of those moments where in my, in my head, I probably would have left a long time ago, um, but it, it paid off to kind of have a little bit of a perseverance. And also I think to not have another meeting scheduled back to back also made that one, made that one a success. So but yeah, you know, spending two hours in a break room while the people are coming in to eat their lunch. And they're like, who are you? Why are you here? So one of my uh, best friends and first roommates out of college uh, worked in sort of a combination of medical device type sales, you know, pharmaceutical sales as well. And you hear stories like that all the time in the sort of med tech space where, yeah, you yeah. kind of just got to wait around and hope you can catch the doctor or walk quickly alongside uh, him or her as you're going through the hallway and, and try to get the quick pitch. So uh, yeah. sound, it, it paid off. Love that. Um, all right. So University of Arizona, about 250,000 alumni on LinkedIn, UC Irvine, around 200,000, Oregon State, over 165,000, George Fox University, 21,745 alumni. And you stepped in uh, to lead that organization. You mentioned that you had shared that aspiration with Mike Goodwin, wanting to be in a chief advancement, uh, VP for advancement type role. Yeah. Um, was that an easy decision, hard decision, lessons learned? And just tell me a little bit about going from that sort of large public environment that you had been into um, such a such a different context. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it was an incredible experience. I think that as a development officer, you work with an academic leader um, when you're at a large institution, or you can work centrally with lots of leaders. And so at Oregon State, I was fortunate enough to work with lots of leadership, um, from deans to the president, um, to our leadership team within the foundation as well. And so, um, and, and the, the kind of through line through my through all of my roles has been I've built programs. And so all of my jobs pretty much have been new or vacated for an extended period of time. And so when I came in, it wasn't this idea that you were going to just maintain. The idea was like, hey, you gotta come in and figure this out. You need to build something. Um, that skill set and kind of those experiences absolutely prepared me to walk into a you know, to a chief advancement officer role um, and the vice president for an advancement role. And at a school like George Fox, which is the largest private school in the state of Oregon, um, it was, you know, it's very similar to being a chief advancement officer role within a, a large institution for like a college of business or engineering, where you have, you know, about if you're, if it's a, if it's a decentralized shop where you have your own marketing team, alumni relations team. So it, it felt it didn't feel too far off from the things I had done, but it was a leap of faith, I think, for George Fox, honestly, to take a chance on me to walk in and lead a university. I think the, the one part of the job is leading the advancement team. The other part of the job, though, is you're part of the presidential cabinet, and there are five of you making really significant decisions about the health of the institution. And so... Um, for me, kind of moving, moving from a development officer role into that space, what I wanted to do was have an opportunity to actually flex those muscles and, 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 and see if I could do it. <laughs> this was like, at some point you just, you sink or swim. And luckily I was able to swim in that space and do pretty well. Um, and I think 
we built a program that I was extremely proud of. Um, you know, we we doubled the fundraising there in the, in three three years. We increased our donor base significantly. We made some really significant strides for the institution, um, which was incredible. But I also did that during the pandemic, <laughs> and so um, you know, I was there for you know, in, I was in 2020. I was there for about a, I was a year in, and so that was leading the institution. Um, it was leading my team. It, a lot of that definitely, but we were making decisions about the institution that, you know, were felt at the time, looking back on it, it felt like they were the decisions of, if, are we going to survive or not? Um, how are we going to make sure that we adapt in this new world? And we did it in weeks, days, months, hours, um, where we made those decisions and changed in real time. And that was a huge lesson learned. Um, for me in a lot of ways. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a great experience. The, pe the people there, um, wonderful people there that I had a chance to work with and build a team and hire a team um, as well. I want to talk about your work at the University of Oregon. You joined the team in late 2021. Uh, and then just help me understand the sequence of events because in 2022, the Balmer Institute for Children's Behavioral Health was established. Uh, in concert with a $425 million donation from Connie and Steve Ballmer, both former Microsoft uh, executives, Steve as CEO, Connie, uh, my understanding is, is a University of Oregon graduate, and they work together around the Ballmer Group philanthropy. So just give me the overall context, but then what goes into a new institute being established and sort of there's university strategic considerations, there's alignment with the donor interests, and then you got to move into execution mode, which is my understanding uh, where you've been focused. So tell me about that, Michael. Yeah, like yeah. And, and I'd love to come back to one thing after this question, which is around kind of the smaller institution versus kind of these big privates, but are not, are these big publics? Um, that I think is kind of a, a really interesting lesson and through line there. But why don't you, why don't you hear that if it's top of mind? Start there and then we'll come yeah. back. Yeah. Um, what, one of the things that was really interesting to me is when I got there, the question I was asked by, by the team that was there was, how do you, how can you do this here? Like you've worked at large institutions. We aren't raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it's totally different. And, and kind of back to the analogy of, of, of athletics, actually. I thought about Hoosiers and like the moment where, you know, Gene Hackman takes this, takes them into the gym and, and measures the rim height. Right. And he's like, okay, same height courts, the same length. Um, this is basketball, right? Um, the size of the arena is irrelevant. The number of people watching was irrelevant. You're playing the same game. And that's what it feels like in fundraising is if you're an institution and you have 2000 alumni, or if you have, 200,000 alumni, or if you have 2,000, you know, like students, if you're, if you're raising $5 million a year, if you're raising $250 million a year, the basics are the basics. Development is development. And so I had to get my team to understand that. And it actually was one of those moments for me where I actually called um, Mike Goodwin and, and Mike Andreas at the University of Oregon. And I said to them, can I bring my team down? Um, I want them to come and learn from you and have an opportunity and from your teams and also have an opportunity for them to understand that what we do is very similar, right? And so um, we ended up doing a retreat, a two-day retreat at both schools and Mike and, um, well, the Mikes, I should say, were gracious in hosting us. Um, and it was incredible, an incredible experience where our team learned that, yeah, the challenges they face are different, but we are peers, right? Um, and also that the school that these institutions could learn something from us. We did incredible work with parents and parent philanthropy. And you know, the team there was like, how do you do that? How, how do you like what's it like? Tell us your strategies. And so um, I think it's a, a significant lesson that, you know, from a development perspective, oftentimes we look at the dollars and we think the number of zeros is what's relevant in your job, but really it's the impact. So you just had to, had to throw that in there. 
I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. And it's also a reminder of, of how uh, collaborative this sector is, you know, that, that Mike and Mike would be willing to sort of do that sort of mutual sharing does not surprise me at all. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a good reminder to our listeners that whether it's at a VP level, at a peer level, uh, conferences, you name it, if you're unsure, odds are somebody else has navigated a similar challenge and would be more than willing to quickly answer that LinkedIn request or, you know, the email that you might send to try to connect in the way that you just described. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really interesting, but back to the Balmer, the Balmer gift and kind of the, all what that means for us. And so, I mean, this is the forward thinking of not only the Balmers, but I would say also um, our team here at University of Oregon to, to think about solving this incredibly, what challenges we could solve through really, um, you know, significant philanthropy um, is how we even got to the place we are now. And so you mentioned kind of the balancing institutional priorities and development priorities. And so this wasn't a priority. There wasn't like, hey, we have this mental health, this children's behavioral health thing that we want to solve. What it was honestly was um, in this process of, of, of this gift was looking at it and saying, if we had a chance to do something pure, like we didn't know the, the amount that would cost, right? The question was, if we had a chance to think without, without limits, and we asked some key faculty members, understanding, you know, we, we know where um, the intersection of kind of the Balmer groups um, giving has been and what they care about. And the question was very much, and the Balmers as a family, and the question was very much, what does that look like? And what are our competencies as an institution? And we have a very strong competencies in our college of education um, and within our, our psychology as well. Um, and, and how we work with children. And the question was, what is the biggest challenge facing children today? And we asked, and Mike and, and our provost sat in a room with about with this handful of faculty members for a few days in a retreat and hammered out this concept of um, blending some interdisciplinary things to create something completely new. Um, and, the, and the challenge was very much like this was, there are not enough professionals in the workforce to actually handle if the need that's out there for children's behavioral health, right? There, and so we need to create a new profession. We need to create a bachelor's level degree that focuses on children's behavioral health from a research and clinical practice standpoint. That is, that is accessible, that doesn't require advanced degrees, and what level of practice could that look like? And very much, if you think about doctors and nurses, um, that's the model and, and kind of the, the analogy that, that I use a lot is that um, very much like doctors and nurses, having nurses allows doctors to do a lot of the work that's very acute um, and to spend the time on that work. And imagine if we didn't have nurses, what work would doctors be doing? And, and who would have access to doctors? It's the people that have the ability and the networks and um, the resources to have access for that care. And that's what we see in behavioral health. So this was an issue of equity. Um, it was an issue of access. And it was an issue of like, we need to develop a workforce that can relieve the pressure at the top. Um, and so as an institution, it's, it became a priority because we said we want to be the, the leaders and help solve this challenge. And so the gift is announced and the Institute is established. And there is a part of me where I could say, oh, the, the money was raised. Tell me about the ongoing development work or maybe from your perspective, that's when it really started. Yeah. And, and how do you sort of frame the need for ongoing development in the context of such a transformational gift? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that we get asked a lot, honestly. Um, and I think it gets back into the mechanics of the gift and starting something to meet this incredible need. And so um, the mechanics of the gift are $60 million allowed us to buy a brand new, to buy a campus, 
So a home for the Balmer Institute and a home for the University of Oregon, Portland. So we have a home now. We have about 500 students. It's where I'm at right this second in Old Town, Portland. Um, there was a campus that went out that, that shut down in 2020, um, Concordia, University, Concordia University in Northeast Portland. Um, a really substantial 19 acre campus. And so part of the gift allowed us to move, based to, to purchase that campus and start the Institute there from a physical standpoint and to move our current program. $200 million allows us to hire faculty. Um, so $100 million allows us to give out scholarships to about 40 students in the Balmer Institute per year that are full ride. Um, so 160 scholarships total um, that are designed to provide access um, for students that have historically haven't had an opportunity to enter college. The goal is to have a workforce that looks like the students that they're serving. The reason the institutes in Portland is, and particularly partnered in Portland Public Schools, is because it's our most, it's one of our most diverse um, school districts in the state. Um, and so that's, again, one of the key pieces of, of why it's here locally in Portland and not two hours down south in Eugene. Um, and so as we, as we talk about the mechanics of the gift, we're at $360 million already. Um, there's some dollars in there that also allow us to operate the campus and bring up the infrastructure a little bit um, to what we needed to be over 10 years. So really, that's a start. Where we are now is, um, you know, we need to meet the challenges ahead of us today, which are being developed by a new executive director. Um, and there are things that, that we are going to need to fund for students to have access. So those scholarships are awesome. It's a great start, but it'll only reach about 20% of our students when we're fully up and running. Um, what can we do for the other 80% of our students? That's the, one of our first questions. We want this to be not only a, because it's the first, we want this to be a national model. This is not gonna be like a University of Oregon's gonna solve the children's behavioral health issues of the country. We have to actually share information. How do we do that? What does that system look like? How do we help um, other states create this new bachelor's degree? Um, there needs to be resources that allow us to share that message. Um, and the research that actually says what we're doing works. So this, the clinical research, the research from our faculty, um, that'll be happening. We need the resources to help that fund their research efforts um, as well. Um, so there are some buckets that we've already started to identify that are, that are not funded, but are the next stage of, of where we're heading. So where do you start? Because there aren't a lot of brand new BAs being formed. It means you don't have an alumni base over the last 50 years where you just say, all right, let's try to do some screening and understand, you know, who the logical prospects might be. Um, you are kind of starting from scratch. And also the mission is so, um, I guess it is so easy to connect with. Yeah whether you attended University of Oregon or not, that that almost creates an additional issue, which is your constituency could be much, much broader than the traditional advancement constituency. And so on one hand, that's great. It's a bigger potential prospect pool. But on the other hand, I don't imagine you've got armies of researchers at your disposal to help build, uh, you know, prospect pools. Yeah, it's, it is a big challenge. And so, um, in part, we're, 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 we're fortunate that this um, initiative has had so much publicity that people are calling and opting in. So we do have these people who are saying like, what can we do to help this? Um, and we're seeing a lot of that actually. We're seeing a lot of people that this doesn't matter if you're a duck or a beaver or whatever it is, this is all about children. Um, and the fact I think that coming out of the pandemic so many people were home with their kids and saw how hard it is to actually work with children every day and also saw how much, how many of our children were actually suffering from behavioral health issues. And you look at the data, it's pretty astounding. Um, so very much like trying to solve cancer, right? Like it's this big thing. And, and, and in a way, Balmer Institute is, is, is almost like a hospital system in that. 
where a lot of the folks who are coming to us are the, almost like grateful patients in the hospital system. What they're grateful for is we're even addressing the issue, right? And they're grateful that we're addressing that challenge, grateful we're addressing that challenge, and they want to be a part of that. So we have those people who are raising their hand, which is wonderful. Um, the other side of that coin, though, is from a research perspective, is actually through Evertrue, we have an opportunity to mine the data from social media um, in particular and from our um, communications of who's actually saying this is great, right? So it's who's opening up the emails, who's liking our Facebook posts, who's commenting, and then taking that information to start to build a pipeline. Um, because you're right, this is, this, is, this is bigger than, you know, we don't have an alumni base. We don't have a traditional donor base. So how do you find those prospects? Um, so the solutions at Everture are actually going to be a big part of our strategy to build that base um, as we move forward. Well, it's an amazing initiative and uh, cannot wait. And yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, we believe strongly that especially around, I mean, kids, you know, it's just such a such an accessible, approachable sort of mission. Um, but ultimately, we've got to be able to tell a story, which then allows us to do qualification and at least know who's interested, who has means, how do we make sure that we're pointed in the right direction? And it's a little bit trickier. Uh, when you don't have that natural constituency, but still very doable. Um, I know that we've only got a little bit of time left, but you'd also mentioned prior to our conversation that you're excited for, for AI. I mean, just tell me, like, wave a magic wand and sprinkle chat GPT all over the advancement sector. What could it look like knowing what you know now a year or two from now? Well, I mean, it's our, what this AI was unleashed upon us, what, less than four months ago. And I've talked to colleagues at other institutions and even as we look at our at our strategy and it's already transforming the work that some folks are doing. Um, as we built our case for support, for instance, for um, as we build out this Portland campus, um, we have a very significant fundraising challenge ahead of us to make this campus, this new campus, the University of Oregon. Um, so as we built out that case statement, it, one of the things we did was we said, you know, I, I, I took it and we spent two months building it out. And then I said, well, let's, I want to plug it into chat GBT and see what it does. I just want to see if it, how it organizes this and did it a couple of rounds and worked with our Marcom, Marcom team. And I was like, this doesn't sound like us, but I like some of the things and nuance that it created by reframing what we wrote in a different way. And it made it a little bit better. Right. And so we took that and then we tweaked it ourselves to make it what we needed to make it, but it rearranged things that flowed a little bit better. And so I was kind of blown away by that, number one, but it gave me another perspective in some ways, right? And I did it, it did it without having to hire a firm to give me an outside perspective. So that was interesting to me. Um, you know, I, I, it's been interesting too, where they're, you know, when you're looking, looking at wanting to look at your, do your um, prospecting emails and your thank you emails and having a chance to kind of plug in something that might sound a little better than what you wrote. <laughs> um, and so it takes a lot less time to formulate and, and get on paper by kind of presenting an idea. So we're, those are some of the things I think that are interesting. It's very like some of those very like tactical things, but even bigger than that is, you know, there are universities now that are plugging in our information to create an AI that talks in the president's voice um, that can create a newsletter in the president in, in the voice of the institution. And to me, that's just incredibly interesting. I don't know what it means yet. Um, I think we're all tackling that. We actually, funny enough, have a, a Mark Koenig and, and, and a few other folks from uh, Case. We're going to do a presentation in Portland on that topic of how is AI transforming our work? Um, here next month, we're going to have that conversation. So I think it's an important conversation to have um, because as you know, we are all limited on our budgets. Um, we don't have unlimited resources, um, up, you know, despite what folks might think about advancement shops. And so having something that can complement us and help us maximize our time from our staffing perspective could be really important. 
I agree. I mean, it's incredibly exciting for us. And frankly, I think a part of our responsibility has been historically, you know, how do we connect with new trends, mobile, social, AI being the new one, and then help apply that, weave it together in the advancement sector. And I mean, just thinking about the historical data that we're sitting on, historical contact reports, historical digital interactions, historical engage, you know, engagement activities, gift transaction data. There's so many places for uh, signals of interest, affinity that have been left and that historically we have had to spend a lot of time hunting and pecking manually ourselves or trying to have research go and create a bio by basically, you know, yeah. you know, doing Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb tracing of, of the history. And I think, you know, that's one of the areas we're really excited about at Evertrue, taking all of this unstructured data that has historically been in CRMs, it's been on LinkedIn, it's been on Facebook, it's been in Thankfully, it's been in all these different places. And boom, tell me about Michael. And his history. Yeah. Oh, this is Michael's history. And and some of these donors have you know, 50 years of contact reports that you know you and your peers try to make sense of. That's not easy. And then well, I think the time. once you understand that history, yeah. well, now you can then understand interests, right? Pull me a list of donors that we think might be interested in children's behavioral health. Yeah. And there's some keyword mining that we've done historically at Evertrue, but I feel like it is about to be transformed when you can just think about interest-based tagging and then adding the filters for wealth or past giving, or are they assigned, unassigned and all of that stuff that's that's been possible. Um, well, and then- we're into, I think that, Go ahead, yeah. I, I think that's only advancement data. When we think about what we do, what our, what our alums did as, as students, when we think about what happens with the boards that they serve on, with the, all of the information that's out there. Ticketing data. Yeah. Know, Ticket data. I mean, in some cases, we have met advancement professionals over the years who've said, oh, yeah, we didn't want that in our database because it would make it too noisy or it would be too hard to figure. And now it's like, no, 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 no. We want it all because there's actually a way to go and crunch it and synthesize it without having to go into the hundredth table view to get at something. Well, it goes back to, you know, I think that one of our biggest challenges in, in development is that we still talk in very big ways about what our institutions do, and we, we cast very wide nets. But Amazon knows what I like to buy. Um, like algorithms continuously are putting things in front of me that are, yes, in some ways, they're, they're taking things away from me that I might actually be interested in and things I might want to know about. And so there's still a lot of need for that big net. But if we can get to the person who might have graduated from the College of Education, but they might actually be interested in the research that's happening um, for Alzheimer's disease, right? We would never know that because right. we don't have a database that allows us to like do that and to give present the information that that person would care about in real time. Um, but their AI could help us get there. And also help us tailor that message so that back to actually the original question of like the mass versus the one-to-one, -one, well, what if I could create a message that is one-to-one -one? that Michael Reza, I know these are all the things you care about. This is your message that looks very different than the person next door, the alum in your class. Like that's, that's so interesting to me. No, I, I love that. I think you're spot on. And um even thinking about, can we do 80% of the work that we want a development officer to do for them? And so that the role maybe shifts to a little bit more about approvals versus starting with a clean sheet of paper. Uh, you, you know, that if somebody makes a donation and the designation is X, Y, Z, and the gift amount is this, and we have other indications through past uh, engagement signals of what they're interested in. Well, then why don't we pre-write the stewardship email for Michael Reza and let Michael review it the same way that you wanted to review the case statement and some of the other you know points you were referencing earlier, um, but that we get you 80% of the way there, which means we can spend all of that time actually doing the personalized touch points with people versus 
the clean sheet of paper starting from scratch, writer's block, all the things that we all deal with. Yeah. It's an exciting time. No, it's almost it's, is exciting. Yeah. And yeah. being able to play Snake on my Nokia phone. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's all wonderful. And the work that you're doing is helping advance that. So thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. Hey, are you all uh, hiring or just tell me about kind of what's going on at the university right now? And if people want to stay in touch with you, I know you're active on LinkedIn, but what else would you recommend? Yeah, so we are hiring. Actually, we're hiring uh, my new boss. So if anyone's interested in being the new VP here at uh, University of Oregon, that job if is- If you have listened to this podcast and been thinking the whole time, I would love to be that guy's boss. This is your moment. This is this is the moment. Um uh, you know, and I also am hiring a senior director of development to work with me on the Balmer at the Balmer Institute um, as the first uh, development director here for us. So, um, really amazing opportunity uh, as well to build something that I think is going to have tremendous impact and have national reach. So, really great opportunity. That that position is open, um, and we are hiring a ton of development officers. We finished a campaign about a year and a half ago. Um, and just like everyone else, we're figuring out what's next. Um, but that also means that we need to really ramp up our hiring and staffing. And um, we have a number of other development development positions that are open um, in Eugene and Portland. So, Love it. Michael, yeah. thank you for sharing. And, and also, everybody should know Michael stayed involved with uh, Case uh, over the years. And I know he's been involved heavily with Case District 8 as well. And uh, and be on the lookout if, if you all are uh, engaged in that in that uh, organization. And with that, I think we'll we'll wrap it up today, Michael. It's a Friday. I hope you have a great afternoon and weekend. You're doing incredibly important work as a dad of three boys, nine, seven, and four now. You know, starting to just see how important the behavioral health and and mental health uh, is. And so uh, I love I love the impact area. Wish you the best and. And with that, I'm going to sign off with today's guest, Michael Reza, who serves as AVP of Portland Development and Alumni Engagement and is specifically working closely with the Balmer Institute at the University of Oregon. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it, Brent. Thanks for the time. <laughs>